This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. But of course, like most Vancouver people, I stayed up late last night to watch the Canucks struggle. There's a good word, struggle, against uh, the Vegas Golden Knights, which happened to coincide with the extremely long conservative leadership convention. As it turns out, the third ballot announcement of Aaron O'Toole as the winner of the conservative party leadership race came mere moments after the end of the third period of the Canucks game. So for us, watching, uh, it was it was hockey. Unfortunately, it wasn't terribly entertaining hockey, but at least it was live and it was it was going on. Whereas uh, those watching, watching the conservative leadership race, watching an empty screen for how long? Five and a half hours? I doubt that somehow. But it all timed out perfectly for Canucks fans here in this time zone and nowhere else in Canada. Here to talk about this, uh, the uh, Mr. O'Toole, as the new leader of the opposition is Zane Velji, political analyst and co-founder of Everyone's Canada. Zane joining us this morning from Calgary. Zane, hello, welcome. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, because I kept fairly normal sleeping hours last night, Zane. I suspect your, your time zone came came as a as a benefit to you. Look it at was, that. It was a total bonus last night, no question. I have a lot of family and friends in Toronto, and a guest in Toronto who's going to join us in another hour or so to talk about this too. Uh, and it was way past his bedtime. What a bizarre night, Zane. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, if, if we focus in on the process for a second uh, and listen, let's let's not make the process the headline because there is a headline that came out of this, which is Aaron O'Toole. But to be clear, the process was extremely grim. And it's not so much so the fact that it was the ballots that had been shredded and had to be reissued. It was really the fact that the Conservative Party kept, you know, lingering with the 90 minutes here, 30 minutes here, 45 minutes here, and then lo and behold, the political class, so to speak, is waiting seven hours and and the media is struggling, you know, God bless them, but struggling to fill airwaves with redundant commentary when nothing's happening. So this process really is is, is a blemish. I don't think it'll affect the overall brand of the Conservative Party. But there's a few people that will say, well, remember, you know, they want to run a country and they can barely open some envelopes. Like, what's going on here? Uh, That might be a footnote to to, uh, what's obviously the headline here, which is Aaron O'Toole. Well, you know what I kind of enjoyed in a perverse sort of way, Zane, was watching our colleagues the very high-priced help on TV actually earned their money for a change. They had to, they had to work and pad and fill and, and fill and, and fill some more for hours and hours and hours. They actually earned their money last night. They got very angry, too. They were, they were put off because, well, their, their schedules had been interrupted, and they, they got quite perturbed. And, of course, it wasn't, it wasn't de- deliberate, but by the end of the evening, they were starting to make it feel like that they, they had been put out. And it was comical, frankly. They did an okay job. I was bouncing back and forth between the various networks, of course, to varying degrees of anger and discomfort, and some younger reporters doing an absolutely fabulous job of filling those long waiting periods. But it was, the, it was I think, 
uh, as you say, Zane, uh, the, the, the bottom line is going to be, look, these guys can't even... How many months did they have to organize this? The fact is they had the, the gathering in a hotel, and Zane, there were no people. I mean, there were the, the candidates and their, their teams, and then there were the vote counters. There were no delegates. There were no drunks in the hallways. There were no distractions, and they had months to prepare. This is nuts. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, listen, I, I, I want to be charitable because there's so much that goes on to producing a leadership result. You know, even in what I'd call peace times, non-COVID times, you've seen several leaderships from across varying party lines, Mulcair, McGinty, Jason Kenney, you know, others have been delayed by several hours. I think the issue here of what actually compounded the problem was to say, hey, we've got a problem. And I think people would have been fine with it and, and, and uh, just, you know, uh, allowed themselves to say, let's tune back in when they say they're going to be back in five hours sure. rather than having this 90-minute lingering delay just stringing people along. So I think, you know, listen, I, I think the, the political class, you and I, uh, political observers are gonna are gonna remember this, etch this into our memory, use it as a bit of a punching bag. But I think for the the average Joe who's tuning in, saying Aaron who just won, that's exactly going to be the story. Which is Aaron O'Toole now has won and now needs to have a very rapid campaign to start defining himself to Canadians. Well, it's important too to recognize Zane that prior to the convention, actually, or the uh, the leadership. Uh, 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 show uh, this weekend went to air, the pollsters were looking around the country asking people, you know, days or hours before the selection of the leader, who would your choice be? And by the way, are you even aware of the fact that there's a conservative leadership race going on? So for those people who were aware, well, then I like McKay or I like O'Toole, or a lot of them surprisingly said, I like Leslie Lewis. I liked her too. But 47% of all people asked right across Canada didn't even have a clue there was a leadership race on Zane. Yeah, and I mean, part of that is not surprising. You know, by structure and design, leadership races are uh, are meant to speak to a very specific audience, i.e., the members of a party. Sure, right? They are they are not necessary, and especially in this race. You know, one of the observations I'd make is that this race, it seemed like everyone had the same relative strategy, which was. Let's make this about mobilizing our existing members, ensuring we get high yield and high efficiency and participation with who's already in the tent, rather than making this a campaign of trying to incubate new members. You know, I'd say the one person who tried to do that the most was probably Peter McKay as being a, a relic of the PC party. Sure. But I think one thing this proved was that this was a true blue uh, election. They wanted to engage, mobilize, hear out their conservative base and in the conservative base there's a disproportionate social conservative base which we can talk about but yeah. to your point sterling this is really an exercise for a very small audience not for the gen pop which comes at a cost and the cost is you know as of whatever am you know, monday morning mm -hmm. uh, the majority of canadians still have no idea who won and even if it would have been peter mckay would he have had a little bit more name recognition certainly but not to the point that that i think us as as the chattering class expects these people to have when, when they're etched into our memory and part of our, you know, day-to-day -day, uh, conversations about these things. So, you know, whoever it would have been, they're now going to have to go out and aggressively start branding themselves as to who they are, what they care about, 
you know, Aaron O'Toole has some work to do to ensure that the social conservatives that kind of pushed him over the top in this leadership race do not necessarily brand him as 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 that to uh, to the peril of someone like Andrew Scheer last sure. election. So there's work to be done. Uh, but you're absolutely right. These things are not meant for the general population. They're meant for a very small, hyper-engaged subset of uh, of those weird people that hold political memberships in this country. And, and that's what this was for. Friends, now the real work begins. We could be into an election campaign as soon as this fall. But as more than 260,000 passionate conservatives have already shown in this record-breaking leadership amidst a pandemic, the Conservative Party will be ready for the next election. And we will win the next election. To the millions of Canadians that are still up, that I'm meeting tonight for the first time, good morning. I'm Aaron O'Toole. You're going to be seeing and hearing a lot from me in the coming weeks and months. But I want you to know from the start that I'm here to fight for you and your family. Part of the acceptance speech last night of MP for Durham, Ontario, and the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Aaron O'Toole. Zane Velji is with us talking about the Conservative leadership announcement last night, ever so delayed as it was. Apparently, Zane, we're now learning this morning about the nature of the, de- the delay. The scrutineers, they say they had counted about 97% of the votes, and then one particular batch went through the machine that opens the envelopes, uh, and so they can get at the ballots and the envelope opening machine started to slice up the ballots and they literally had to go through each one and scotch tape them back together because the ballot wasn't just an X. It was a ranked ballot with the several names on it. So they really had to perform surgery on several thousand of them. And when you take a look at that kind of uh, malfunction that probably cost a 15 cent screw to fix uh, and, and a delay of several hours, uh, the the bottom line is a pretty embarrassing scenario for anybody to be caught in, particularly with the entire focus of the nation's news media on them for the entire process. Uh, not their not their shiningest night. Mr. O'Toole, by the way, Zane, is 47, the same age as the Prime Minister, uh, and yet he doesn't come across as youthful and vigorous as Mr. Trudeau. What do you make of that? I actually don't think that's a bad thing if you're the Conservatives right now. You know, there's, there's a case to be made, and political parties try to do this often. They see the template of what succeeded, and they try to replicate it for themselves. And often, the strategy of last time is not the strategy that wins it for you this time. Uh, and because it's, it's voters have bought a certain package, they often want to reject that package, uh, whether it be four years, eight years, seven years in a minority government, whenever you know they're in that situation. And so for them to have someone that contrasts Justin Trudeau, that kind of looks like the adult in the room, despite having, you know, being the same age, 47, 48, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. so like, um, in the same age bracket, but look like the adult in the room, be a, you know, a fierce sort of lawyer from back from from the back of uh, uh, the background, and the pedigree uh, had this ability to articulate that's more than sheer, but not a a sort of grandiose sort of over the top way of communicating. 
I think that's quite compelling. And if you're a voter right now and you've perhaps rejected the Justin Trudeau model of both leadership and communication, you're certainly not going to go to someone like Jagmeet Singh, both from a policy, perhaps even from a leadership perspective, who espouses some of those same qualities. But a figure who says, you know, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm up to. I'm not here to be a star. I'm here to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. I have a very specific background and, and a way to hold the government's uh, feet to the fire. I feel like that that's the type of leadership that, uh, that perhaps could win it. You know, one of the biggest regrets, if I can just add a footnote, an editorial curveball, is that I feel like for the NDP, this would have been a perfect time to have someone like Tom Mulcair as their leader, who espouses some of those same sentiments, right? Competent, not super flashy, like good legislator, you know, for Aaron O'Toole comes with that same background, both held, held as a minister of veterans affairs, but also in opposition. So I feel like there is a playbook here for the conservatives from the true blue side, but also from the leadership side, which would make Aaron O'Toole quite palatable, especially if you're kind of, you know, lukewarm to getting cooler on the Justin Trudeau leadership format that yeah. he's been presenting over the last number of years. Interesting stuff. Yeah. And uh, the uh, the demise of Mr. McKay, a repudiation of the old school conservative uh, party. This is this is Stephen Harper's version of the party. McKay represented the old party. And I don't think uh, that was that was enough. Uh, 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 clearly, the final numbers speak for themselves. There was a significant margin of victory. And uh, off we go with the, the new look, except Mr. O'Toole is going to be, the, certainly the liberals, and you can bet the farm on this one, Zane, the liberals are going to go after the conservative, the new conservative leader, uh, in exactly the same way they did the old one on his social conservative connections and values. Mr. Scheer um, was terrible, absolutely terrible, and got sucked into that vortex and got lost and, and didn't need to, couldn't handle it. What about O'Toole? O'Toole, I think, is a bit different, and I think the liberals have to be really careful here, right? Uh, This was one of the lessons that we learned in Alberta, is when you start demonizing the opponent as being some sort of monster on on social issues or a set of policies, and they just slightly overperform or have a modicum of decency or humanity, electorate starts believing you. And I think because they suck uh, sheer into the trap doesn't mean they can suck and name trap. We learned that here with Jason Kenney, right? You mm-hmm. attack him as being so social conservative, and then he comes across as extremely reasonable, has this really interesting way of modulating and moderating himself, and the electorate stops believing you. They say that this is just a political game. Even though you have evidentiary truth to what you are trying to say, right? It, 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 the electorate just stops believing you because they feel like it's spin from both sides. This is where the liberals need to be careful. The re- I'll repeat the same lesson. The recipe that won you last time will not be the same one that gets you there this time. It's really convenient to think that Aaron O'Toole is an extension of Andrew Scheer, but he's much more textured than that, and I'd say he's much more savvy than that. A few things to know. Number one, during this leadership campaign, he's the one that outright put up environmental issues, saying we need to be at the front end of environmental issues if we want any chance of viability. Right. He's also said he'd march in pride parades going forward. Mm-hmm. So he's not Andrew Scheer in that regard. And finally, Sterling, he comes from Ontario. And one of the biggest battlegrounds that we're going to have is Ontario's 905 region. And by seeing his really impressive Quebec performance yesterday in the leadership race, he might even be a player in the island outside of Montreal and Quebec. So good luck to the liberals in the sense, you know, applying the same strategy. I feel like it's right to a certain degree, but don't think that you can get Aaron O'Toole in the 
and Travis. He is going to do everything he can to ensure he's his own man and not an extension of of Andrew Shearer or anyone else that came before him uh, to, to fall into this trap uh, like they have in the past. Yeah, his French of the four is the best. Not saying a lot, Zane, but it is definitely right, right. the be- best of the four, and he's going to have to work on that, but he has some time. But if Mr. Trudeau has his way, not a great deal of time. Well, we've only had about 30 seconds left here, and there's a lot of speculation about what the how this is going to play out when the throne speech happens. There'll be a confidence vote, uh, vote rather, a budget in March. A lot of people talking about a, an election next June, what's your take on all of that? If I am Aaron O'Toole right now, I'm spending 90% of my time defining myself to the public, who I am, introducing myself. The eyes of the, uh, of, of the collective population will be put into uh, this throne speech, so don't use it as a way to meander. Have a surgical strike about the policy, and then use the rest of the airtime that you get to define yourself. You've got a long time to start figuring out what you are and what you need to do. Uh, don't need to rush it because of Trudeau's agenda. Um, I, and, I would have right. one. Sir. I have to leave yeah. it there, but you're right. People don't know who this guy is. Zane, yeah. he, he has yeah. to let Canada know, hey, I'm the guy and here's who I am. Thanks for this. Great to talk to you. I appreciate your time. Yeah, likewise. It's a big day for TransLink riders and for BC Ferries passengers. Let's uh, deal with the local TransLink story first. Ben Murphy joining us from TransLink HQ to talk about day one of mandatory masks, system-wide for TransLink. Ben, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to have you with us. I uh, did a. I, I came by SkyTrain to downtown from Sapperton to downtown Vancouver via the Expo Line both Friday morning, Ben, and again this morning. Uh, knowing I'm filling in for Mike, I decided to do a little head count experiment. Now on Friday when I came in, I was on one of the old cars and old trains. There were 15 people in my car, uh, five of whom weren't wearing masks, and everyone else was. This morning, I was on a newer train with one of the bigger cars. Still, not very many passengers, Ben. That's a whole other story but still 18 people in my car and 18 people wearing masks how about that yeah pretty good and we're pretty happy with what we're seeing out there this morning it does seem like there's a very very high level of compliance so it seems people have gotten the message and we're seeing that we're down at waterfront station at the moment actually uh and have just had a, a bit of an event and a handout and I think we saw really very similar numbers to what you were seeing uh, on Canada Line Expo and C-Bus as people were coming and going. And those that didn't have a mask seemed to be coming up to our giveaway stands and collecting one. So, um, so far, so good. Of course, uh, it's the very early uh, stages of this policy, so we'll closely monitor it moving forward. But uh, I think this has been a, about as good as it could have been from our perspective in terms of compliance. Sure. A uh, couple of questions for you, Mr. Murphy. Uh, one, dealing with exemptions. There are individuals, now we know about kids and so on, but there also are exemptions made for people who simply have medical issues and cannot wear masks. Uh, the TransLink people are simply asking those individuals, uh, here's where you, I need your help, uh, to go to where you get your compass card and you can get a mask exemption card. Is that about how that one boils down, Ben? Yeah, that's right. That is optional. So you don't need an exemption card, but if people want to collect one, they can do so from uh, the waterfront station and also Compass Customer Service at Stadium Chinatown. Right. And the idea of those exemption cards ultimately is to be able to either display them or present them, particularly to de-escalate situations if you get customer-to-customer conflicts, anything like that. They're kind of designed as a way of showing, look, I'm not able to wear a face covering or a mask. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of the design. It's modelled off Toronto, have a very similar card, and London in the UK as well. Um, So, yes, if you are in those exemption categories, come in. Now, that doesn't mean um, that 
if you see someone on a train or a bus and they aren't wearing a mask and you can't see an exemption card, that doesn't mean that they don't fit into the exemptions, by the way. I mean, some people may not have had the chance to pick up a card or they don't want to hold one for whatever reason. So we do have to have some understanding and empathy that not everyone is able to wear a mask. Okay, fair enough. Now, uh, another question. I'm just I'm going through the uh, NW Twitter sphere here and looking at uh, comments from uh, transit riders this morning. One person was asking, why don't bus drivers have to wear masks, Ben? Well, our bus drivers are behind barriers, whether they are plexiglass or a vinyl barrier. And so to that extent, there is that separation between them and customers. Okay. And so the decision we made was to say, look, it's uh, up to bus operators uh, whether they want to wear a mask or not. Some do, and in fact, many do, but, um, but it is a choice. And because that protection is there already, uh, from a sort of health and safety standpoint, that is a, a sufficient because the mask is about protecting others. It's not so much about protecting you. And so when there is that separation already there, um, and same with CBUS, there's a cruise station where they can stand behind a barrier and uh, in the wheelhouse as well. So there's a few of those sort of areas where it's optional for employees. Okay. Now, uh, Mr. Farnworth, the public safety minister, escalated the uh, the need for uh, masks and um honoring public health uh, orders and uh, safety guidelines and so on. But the big news last week was, of course, the uh, the addition of enforcement capabilities for uh, the government to uh, insist that under certain circumstances, people do comply with regulations. Now, as we look at transit, and it's only day one, Ben, and we're not going to jump on people and, and get mad at them and give them tickets and stuff on day one. That's not what it's about. But is there built into the plan somewhere along the line an enforcement component? Well, so there are provisions for enforcement already built in because essentially what we've done is update the transit rules and regulations. So Rule 11 is now a mandatory face covering or mask policy. So any uh, instance where you look out on the system, we have transit rules posted everywhere. People will actually notice uh, they've all been updated. We've had to uh, change all the uh, signage. So there is provision for enforcement there. But at this stage, uh, we are focused on education, not enforcement. As you say, we don't um, want to be out there dishing out tickets for masks. We don't want transit police consumed by uh, issuing mask tickets. And based on what we've seen so far, it's, it's looking good. If we can continue to have high compliance numbers, uh, there may not be a need for enforcement. But we have to see what happens. It's only the opening hours of this policy. So at this stage, we want to continue to just inform people, let them know. Some of our frontline staff might uh, remind people who don't have a mask about the policy. Sure. And so I think in an ideal world, we wouldn't have to enforce it. So we'll see what happens. Uh, we're encouraged by these early figures, but we'll, uh, we'll watch as it evolves. And we do have that option there if necessary. So we could implement that if we wanted to. Yeah, well, I think you should be encouraged by the compliance. Uh, it's very high today, Ben. And uh, I would think uh, from the uh, perspective of TransLink and cross your fingers and hope everybody falls in line, I, I would think it would probably be uh, breathing an enormous sigh of relief with the degree of compliance <laughs> today. But I wanted to ask you uh, as a final thought, because this is going to happen and you've already mentioned it, uh, the whole notion of uh, customer to customer interaction. Somebody mm -hmm. on a train wearing a mask sees an individual who isn't and decides to turn into a transit cop and there's some kind of confrontation completely unnecessary but it's likely don't you think 
I don't know if it's likely, but there is certainly a risk that uh, that that could happen. And certainly, our advice to customers is is not to confront other passengers. We do not want to see masked vigilantism no out on the uh, on the system. But you know, in discussions with some of the other transit agencies, they haven't seen any significant issues as a as a result of that. Now, that's not to say it won't happen or hasn't happened. I, you know, I'm sure there will be some instances of that. So we would just urge and ask customers to be respectful of one another, to not assume that because someone doesn't have a mask, it's, uh, it's um, necessarily just that they're flouting the rules. It could be that they can't wear one and exactly. they yeah. have an exemption card in their wallet. So you know, I think we need to have understanding um, and in these stages we'll closely monitor this and see, you know, if we do get any any issues arise. So far we haven't seen that, but it's something we'll closely watch for sure. Indeed. Okay, well, thanks for this, Ben. I know you're a busy guy down there at the waterfront station handing out masks on top of everything else today, and good for you for doing that part. Thanks for joining us, and hopefully we've begun a trend here that is going to be a very positive addition to the TransLink way of getting around. I hope so. Thanks, Sterling. You're welcome. Ben Murphy speaking from Waterfront for TransLink this morning on day one of mandatory masks, which also, friends, applies on BC ferries, not only on the boats, but at the terminals. You get your car, you get you into those lanes, and you got 45 minutes or longer till your, your boat leaves, and you want to take a walk or go get a coffee, on goes the mask, and that's the rule effective this morning. And a bizarre story over the weekend that we need to tell you about. It's on Global News BC already, of course, and we've dealt with it on air, on television and radio for the last couple of days. But we have an opportunity this morning to tell you the story in a more or less a first-hand way. Daria Zargar is with us. Daria is a Global BC writer, and she's here to help tell the story of the uh, the anti-gay person in the West End on Saturday night. Hello, Daria. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you. Tell us the story. Tell us your version of the story, Daria. How did you come to be acquainted with it? Yeah, so this happened on Saturday evening at around 8 p.m. Now, I've spoken to VPD, Vancouver Police, about this, and we've been following social media posts online as well. Mm -hmm. So it happened on Davy and Thurlow Street. A group was speaking over a microphone or an amplifier and was preaching anti-gay or religious remarks. So then an individual came up to them, and this was Justin Morissette. He's a Sportsnet broadcaster here. Um, He approached them, asking them to stop. Soon after, he was thrown to the ground, and then his leg was broken. Uh, Vancouver police have since taken two men into jail. Um, They've arrested them with aggravated assault and mischief. Mm -hmm. Uh, VPD hate crime investigators will also be looking into this ongoing incident. Okay, now, what can you tell us about... We know that uh, Mr. Morissette uh, attempted to break up this uh, anti-gay tirade that was being delivered by a small but very loud group uh, on this street corner in the West End. Were there witnesses, do you know, Daria? Yeah, those details aren't really confirmed at the moment. Like I said, I've spoken with VPD. um, I've spoken with Justin a little bit. um, But so far, no details on the uh, witnesses. Um, Yeah, but Justin is currently in hospital at the moment. Uh, Following his Twitter updates, it looks like he's undergoing surgery already. Mm -hmm. um, And hopefully we'll get some more details on witnesses and stuff like that as this 
story unfolds. Okay, so now this is this is the key here this morning because we know that uh, the young man who intervened uh, suffered some pretty serious consequences. As I understand it, Daria, his leg was broken in two places. And uh, from news accounts from Gordon McDonald here this morning, we're hearing that uh, he's likely to be wearing some kind of metal plate in his leg for the rest of his life. Yeah, he did discuss that on his uh, social media feed. Um, he also posted a picture of his leg, and he had metal plates um, on him. So I'm not exactly sure the extent of his injury, but definitely looks like it's done some damage. As we uh, go through the details of this story, friends, and you're hearing it not for the first time, most likely by now, 604-280-9898. Our lines are wide open. I'm just curious about your reaction to this. 604-280-9898. Now, the police have arrested two individuals, Daria, as you said. There have been charges laid. Do they have a court date yet? Uh, Not specified yet that they have a court date. But, yeah, like I said, they... They've arrested two men. They are in jail um, for aggravated assault and mischief. Do we know what the size of the group gathered around the microphone uh, with the anti-gay tirade? Do we know how large a group that was? Um, In the release, it didn't really specify how large the group was. um, So I'm not exactly sure how many people were involved. um, And we will hopefully be getting more details from Justin when we speak to him later this week. Now, you said you've already spoken to Mr. Morissette. And (laughs) Daria, when you talked to Justin, did you ask him just flat out, point blank, why did you do this? Why did you stick your nose into that picture? He's been kind of busy in hospital at the moment, so I haven't tried to pester him too much. Um, But he did tweet out that he thought it was the right thing to do. Um, And he said no matter what uh, the repercussions were, and in this case for him breaking his leg, he said that you should stand up for what is right. Certainly not criticizing him at all. I'm just curious as to what might have been his motivation. Uh, And uh, so we know the charges have been laid, individuals have been arrested, and you also mentioned something about a hate crime. Uh, Flesh that one out for us, if you don't mind. Yeah, so I mentioned that uh, VPD hate crime investigators will also be looking into this. It hasn't been confirmed that this is a hate crime at all, but they are looking into it. Okay, so uh, that's about where the story is at. Now, has the surgery, have all the surgeries been performed? Do we know that Mr. Morissette is uh, successfully recovering, or might there be more procedures required? Yeah, as far as more procedures go, I'm not entirely sure. Um, By following his Twitter feed, it looks like he's already undergone a surgery, um, and he posted a picture of his leg on a Uh, bed in hospital. Okay. And uh, any other comments or remarks from VPD? Notoriously tight-lipped when they're investigating a crime, Daria. I'm not expecting much more, but I'm just curious because you've been uh, speaking with them directly uh, and trying to get more information about the story and and their handling of the event. Uh, Any other details uh, forthcoming from VPD yet? Um, no other details. The only thing they are mentioning is that they're looking for witnesses or anybody that was in the area that could maybe help corroborate more evidence, more evidence of what happened. Okay, so now this is at Davy and Thurlow at approximately 8 o'clock on Saturday evening, correct? Yep. So the police are looking for people who were in the area who may have witnessed this assault. Uh, and if so, to come forward and call the non-emergency line. And of course, if you have video, that would be enormous. Do they have any video? Are you aware of any video evidence they may have collected? 
Uh, I'm not aware of VPD collecting any video evidence, but uh, we have broadcasted um, some uh, witnesses that took video of the incident. And that, of course, would be helpful to Crown come uh, trial time. Daria, uh, thanks for this. I know that you've been doing a lot of behind-the-scenes work trying to cobble together the story as best you can. And there's, there's a scarcity of details for obvious reasons. But we do thank you for putting all the facts together on a nice, uh, orderly uh, fashion and taking a few moments to share them with us this morning. It's, it's quite an eye-opener. It's a bit of a jaw-dropper, if you don't mind my saying. And I hope that uh, the call for witnesses is productive and people who were in the area and uh, who did see the event uh, do come forward and uh, provide some more background. It would be very helpful. And thank you for providing us with even more background today. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Daria Zargar works for us. She's a global BC writer out there in uh, Burnaby, joining us from the Valley and home this morning. Jerry Nichols joining us from Oakville, Ontario. Mr. Nichols is a political commentator and a consultant who has worked with clients in both Canada and the United States. Also uh, formerly with the uh, the uh, Conservative Party of Canada, the Citizens Movement. Uh, Jerry Nichols, a busy guy and a staunch observer of all things conservative for many, many years, here to join us this morning and talk a little bit about that leadership event last night. Uh, Jerry, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you doing? Well, I'm all right. You uh, were required. You and I, we were kidding each other yesterday uh, about the Canucks game. I said, Jerry, you're going to watch the Canucks tonight because, you know, our kids are pretty good and having a lot of fun. And I got back. Oh, no, no. Way past my bedtime. <laughs> well, as it turns out, the Canucks game ended at approximately the same minute as the conservative leadership gathering ended, Jerry. So like it or not, you probably saw more Canucks than you expected. What did you make of all of that six-hour delay and the way in which it was handled? Well, yeah, it was a real marathon last night. You had to be a real hardcore conservative to sit through all that. I think I think the, the lucky thing for the conservatives in all this is that probably nobody really was paying too much attention to that leadership uh, contest last night. Right. I think more people watching hockey games or basketball games or whatever so even though it was a bit of, a, of an error-filled event, and it was certainly embarrassing for the party that it took so long to do it, and it was out of prime time, and people were making fun of them, I think this is this is something that's going to blow over rather quickly, and you know, a week from now, no one will remember that happened. Right, and it's a Canadian Citizens Coalition I was trying to think of in terms of previous affiliations, <laughs> Mr. Nichols. Uh, also, National Citizens Coalition. Oh, there you go. Uh, also, though, <laughs> uh, the 47% uh, polled by Ipsos last week, who had no clue there was a conservative leadership race even underway, uh, speaks to your point that you just made, Jerry, in terms of this is this could very easily go away fairly quickly because... Frankly, not a lot of people were paying attention. It was, you know, that, that number, 47%, that, that seems low to me, Sterling. I think there, there even more people were not paying attention to this race. And, and that's what sometimes the people in the media forget, that most people are not really paying attention to the news. They're not really paying attention to politics. I used to work for a consultant who used to, who used to tell me, before you go into a campaign, keep this in mind. Nobody knows anything about anything, Right. So you really have to run a, a good strategy, a good communication strategy that informs people what's going on, to let them know what your campaign's all about, to let them know what your candidate's all about. And, and, and you have to keep in mind that no one's really paying attention, so you really kind of have to hit them over the head with a sledgehammer to get, to get their attention. What, uh, which of the four candidates uh, impressed you most? And secondarily, which of the four candidates had you figured going in, Jerry, would likely emerge the winner? And that well, may be, there I, may I, be two separate people there. Well, I, my own impression was that Peter McKay was going to win. 
Um, and maybe that's just because I wasn't, maybe like most people, I wasn't paying that close attention to this race as I should have. Uh-huh. But I thought that he had the name recognition. I thought he had the organization. I thought he had a, a pretty good message, which was, I'm the guy that can win. And for a party that's kind of sort of pining for his days of glory and upset about being in the wilderness, I thought that would be something that would really resonate with him. So I thought, I thought him going into the, into the race, into this race, that he was going to be the winner. Not all that surprised, however, that O'Toole, that O'Toole ended up victorious because I, I think that he ran a really good campaign. He ran a sort of a, he ran a, what I would call a, a, a winged, as a winged candidate. In other words, he said, I'm the right wing of the party. Uh-huh. That's where I stand. I'm the tough guy. I'm the conservative guy. And I think that was also a good message that sort of counterpointed McKay's message. McKay was, you know, vote for me because I'm a good guy. Uh, O'Toole was saying, we don't need a good guy. We need a strong conservative. Right. So that was also a strong message. And I think at the end of the day, clearly, that won out. And yet, it's interesting, you say O'Toole sort of staked out that strong right-of-center, typically sort of classic conservative position. And yet this morning, after the leadership, uh, Max Bernier is out there uh, in the Twitter sphere saying O'Toole is a red Tory, which, of course, would be decidedly left-of-center uh, from a conservative perspective. Well, that, that was certainly O'Toole's reputation before the leadership campaign, campaign started. And I think that's a mark to a good communication strategy in his part that he kind of rebranded himself. Uh-huh. And, I think, and I think that what allowed him to rebrand himself in that way is just because McKay, you know, was so unideological. I mean, McKay sort of ran a, I'm, I'm everything to everybody kind of a candidate, right? So that left the ground open for somebody like O'Toole to say, okay, I'm going to claim that. I'm going to claim that ideological mantle. I'm the conservative guy. And compared to McKay, you know, he could pull that off, right? Maybe not against Maxime Bernier, who's more of a libertarian. He's more of a hardcore conservative. Right. But it's all relative, right? Politics is all relative. Relatively speaking, O'Toole was a was a small C conservative in that race, and he made the most of that. Sort of made the most of that of that message. Jerry, try this one on for size, please. Uh, Canadians, a lot of Canadians, uh, those who are not fans of the current government, for example, are waiting for someone to stand up to Justin Trudeau, someone to get angry, someone to clearly articulate an opposing point of view other than I'm the leader of the opposition. I'm supposed to say this is terrible, so it's terrible. Uh, someone who, has, who sounds principled, who is clearly identified as being right of center, and who is comfortable standing tall for those principles. Mr. Shear was a, a gross disappointment, and I think Mr. McKay would have been not perhaps as disappointing as Shear, but not as strong as O'Toole could be, and I, I say could because I don't know enough about the guy. Do you think he's that guy to stand tall and go, over here, this is the alternative, here's what we've got for you? Well, to that I'm going to answer a definitive maybe. <laughs> okay. It, it, it all depends on what the world's going to be like. This is the problem with predicting the future politically in this country right now, because looking at the future is like looking at a distant shore shrouded in mist. There are so many variables out there that we can't, we can't account for. What's the economy going to be like a year from now? What's COVID going to be like a year from now? What other scandals are the liberals going to be involved in a year from now? Because if Canadians are getting upset with Trudeau, if they're they're angry about him over COVID, if they're angry about him over the economy, if he starts raising taxes or whatever, that would play into O'Toole, right? He could be the guy to say, look, I'm, you know, and and what he has going for me is a military background. So just automatically he looks tough. Mm-hmm. He looks principled. And he looks like the kind of guy that, you know, no nonsense. He's a guy we need to set this country in the right courses. Already, he's, he's got that going for him. 
But if, if a year from now the economy is going well and Canadians are relatively content, then he's going to have an uphill climb to convince Canadians to sort of get rid of the incumbent because it's always people are risk averse by nature. Yeah. So it's always hard for them to say, get rid of the guy who's in there right now and give me a chance, even though you don't know who I am. Right. Uh, even though you're happy with what things are going right now. So I think a lot will depend on what the world looks like. Yeah, Six, and, seven, and risk risk averse is a good point to make because Canadians are notoriously conservative voters, and I don't mean capital C conservative. I mean really play your cards close to the vest, go for the lowest risk possible and the most freebies possible usually as well. But we are we are very risk averse when it comes to our our votes on especially a national scale. So uh, there and the uh, the matter of taxes, we'll deal with that in a minute. I, I, I need to take a break, but before we do, there is some speculation. going going on about an election which has to be called uh, not right away, uh, being called as early as next June. What do you make of all of that? I, I don't think the Conservatives will be in any mood for an election anytime soon. I think they have to sort of, uh, O'Toole's going to have to coalesce his power base a little bit. He's going to have to unify his party. He's going to have to come up with a program. He's got to come up with a message. That's all going to take time. I don't think the NDP's in any condition... Or, 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 or position to win an election right now for a lot of reasons. So I think it's up to Trudeau. I think it's up to Prime Minister Trudeau. That's going to be based, I think, on, on the calculations of the polls he's doing. If in June he thinks he has a good chance of winning, yeah, I think he's going to be sorely tempted to pull the plug and to test O'Toole to see what he's got. Jerry Nichols, political consultant, uh, joining us from Oakville, Ontario. We're talking about the new Conservative Party of Canada leader, Aaron O'Toole. And you got to know, Jerry, he's a gutsy guy. He flew Sea King helicopters for the Royal Canadian Air Force for a few years. That's a pretty dodgy old unit. <laughs> the tough guys fly Sea Kings, and not many other people are brave enough to even think about it. So <laughs> so uh, more power to him for having done that and, and having that on his resume. He was a parliamentary secretary. He was a minister under Harper. He does have some parliamentary experience, some chops, and that's going to help. Yeah, I think I think that that's all going to help. I think especially being in the military is, is good for O'Toole. As I said before, it really helps with the branding. I mean, all you have to do is show the guy in his uniform, and people think, ah, there's a leader, there's mm -hmm. a tough guy. So already that that's a help. I think the negative for uh, for for O'Toole is that nobody probably knows who he is. Yeah. Right, he's probably a blank slate to to average Canadian, and I think this is one of the problems with Andrew Scheer is that he too was a blank slate, and he allowed the liberals to fill it in. Right, he allowed the liberals to define him mm -hmm. before he could define himself. I think this is the challenge that Aaron O'Toole is going to face. He's got to define himself quickly. Okay, he's got to let Canadians know who he is, what he stands for, and what his vision is, and he's got to do that in a forceful way. So that Canadians will say, hey, yeah, I like this guy. This is somebody I think I can vote for. Because if he doesn't do that, you better believe the liberals are going to come after him with, you know, with rusty axes. Oh, sure. They're going to try to say, this guy is scary. You can't vote for him. Let's talk to some voters here, Jerry. We did open up our phone lines. We're in New Westminster with Marco on the line. Good morning. Thanks for waiting, Marco. What do you, what do you think about Aaron O'Toole? Could you vote for the guy? I could. I'm a swing voter. I grew up both in a liberal and conservative family. Uh, the issues with the Conservatives, though, is that they have to stand for something and have a positive message. Here, here. Just sitting there on anti-Trudeau is no. And O'Toole's got some weaknesses as well. Um, he's got to be more than just showing himself off in a uniform. And some of his weaknesses from the Harper administration when they cut back on veterans' benefits. Mm -hmm. And that was something mm -hmm. that he was in charge of. 
And the conservatives have to have a message. You have to want a positivity, one of being inclusive. And in my opinion, being a red Tory is a good thing. Because if you add up the liberal vote and the NDP vote, it is far more than the conservative vote. And the conservatives could not win when Trudeau had a scandal going and he still pulled it off. And if the conservatives can't beat him then, when he was at the lowest in his polls, how are they going to beat him? They've got to do it through inclusivity um, and having um, a good platform and one that's a, and one that's appealing. Otherwise, they're not going to win. Uh, good points. Uh, Jerry, any thoughts on Marco's observations? Well, I, 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 th- I think he's right that the, the conservatives missed an opportunity to take down Trudeau because of all the scandals that he was involved in. And I think that's a weakness of Scheer's communications campaign. Mm-hmm. They, they, they couldn't pull the hammer when they had a chance. I would disagree, however, about positivity, and this probably reflects my own, my own sort of bias in politics, is I'm a warrior. I like brawling. Ah. I think Sheer didn't brawl. No. I think if the, if the Conservatives are going to win... And Marco was, uh, to op- he, he was saying the same thing I was, Jerry. He need, we need a guy to stand up for something. Well, yeah, but I think... I always believe that for Conservatives to win, they have to run what I would call a rejectionist campaign. In other words, it's not enough to say, vote for me. They have to say, here's reasons why not to vote for Trudeau. So they have to go after him, and they have to compare and contrast uh, him to O'Toole, and they have to say, here's why, here's why all the reasons why Trudeau's a bad leader. And again, they have to hit people over the head with it. Because, you know, all these scandals that are happening with Trudeau right now, a lot of people aren't really aware of them, and they're only half paying attention to them. So I think the conservatives have got to get their boxing gloves on, they've got to get into the ring, and they've got to start smacking Trudeau around. Because otherwise, yeah, they will lose. I mean, I think they really have to, I think they really have to point, make a pointed effort to say, uh, you know, Trudeau's a bad leader, we're better, vote for us. It, okay. it can't be just positive. They also have to say why he's a bad guy. All right. Catherine, uh, thanks for waiting. Your thoughts on Mr. O'Toole as the leader of the Tories? Good position because I had signed up uh, as a member and, and signed up to support him. So I had a lot of his uh, town halls that I could listen to and I could hear his position on the reason that you think he doesn't stand for things is you don't pay any attention. And media is not exactly interested in the Conservative Party. No question about that, but I don't know enough about him to know whether he stands for anything or not. And that's Well, he uh, does. If you had listened, you would have on immigration, <laughs> on energy. on And if you'd listened even to his acceptance speech, he went through the whole gamut of everybody's Canadian, mm-hmm. LGBT, um, visible minorities, indigenous people, the whole gamut. He said we're all part of Canada and citizens of Canada. He's reaching out already, and he gave a very positive speech, and if anybody had paid attention to it, you would have heard it. Ah, so it's our fault for not paying attention, Jerry. Uh, Apparently, though, uh, he does, as you acknowledge, have a fair bit of hard work ahead of him getting people to pay attention, getting people to know who he is and why he is suddenly a prominent figure and what on earth he does stand for. And before that, Sterling, he's got to unify his party. And, and that's not an easy thing to do, especially after a leadership campaign. There's going to be a lot of people out there who are sore losers and think, oh, the party's going in the wrong direction, or blah, 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 blah. And, and, and also keep in mind that the Conservative Party is, is really not a party. It's more of a, 
of a of an alliance of clans, tribes, and factions, right, mm-hmm. of all different points of view. Uh, Stephen Harper was able to keep it in line through savage discipline, uh, keep discipline in that party, to keep them united under his banner. Can O'Toole do that? Can he keep this party united? If you remember one of Shear's first challenges after he became leader was, was the person we've already mentioned, Maxime Bernier. Yeah. He basically said, you're not a good enough leader. You're not right-wing enough. I'm going. I'm gone. Right? Um, O'Toole's going to have that same challenge. He's going to have to keep the, the McKay people in line and the Sloan people in line and maybe win back some of the, the Bernier people. So job one, Jerry, uh, is is unite the Conservative Party, turn that into a political machine, uh, and then start coming after the people of Canada with a team, a united team behind you. That's the sequence as you see it. Yeah, I think he's got to get a, he's got to get his conservative legions marching in lockstep. All right, Jerry and Nichols. He, I, I'm out of time, my friend. I, I, I'm sorry, but we just fresh out of time. That's <laughs> okay. I thank you for yours, and particularly for staying up way past your bedtime last night to catch all sure. the details. And we'll talk again as Mr. O'Toole and company roll out that platform. When we learn a little bit more, we'll uh, turn to you for some some observations along the way. Thank you for this this morning. Awesome. Thanks for having me on your show, Sterling. Always a pleasure. JerryNichols.com for more about our friend Jerry in Oakville, Ontario. A couple of guests joining us for this half hour. We're going to kick some hockey stuff around. Like most fans, sports fans in British Columbia, I was pretty stoked last night. Got ready for the big game of the first of the next round of the playoffs. Vancouver playing in Edmonton against Las Vegas Golden Knights. And wow, uh, Rob Williams from the Daily Hive is with us today, as is John Jang. Uh, gentlemen, good morning. Uh, I'm looking at the Daily Hive, Rob, here, and your colleague, uh, Bailey Meadows, kind of summed, summed it all up in one sentence. The Vancouver Canucks just got dealt a harsh reality check. A sound spanking, I add. Five zip at the hands of that scoring machine from Sin City. Good morning, Rob. Hey, good morning. Yeah, it was a, it was a rough one for, for Canucks fans. I think everyone was... Uh, like you said, very excited for the game, and uh, they uh, they look like men against boys against the Golden Knights. John, uh, the adjective, the kindest adjective I could find watching the game last night, and it got pretty colorful going along, but the kindest and the most I could use on the radio was unprepared. The Canucks looked hopelessly unprepared for Vegas. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little understandable given that they were coming off a big emotional win against St. Louis in the first round. So, of course, getting prepared for a team like Vegas, it's a, it's a whole different animal. So when I looked at the game, my takeaway from it initially was, okay, it's a case of the Canucks playing poorly as opposed to the Golden Knights just outright dominating, which might be a silver lining for this team. And Rob, uh, you know, watching that game last night, uh, w- was that something you took away from as well, that there is more to this team, obviously, than uh, what we saw in game one, uh, where, boy, there just wasn't a lot of positives to take away from. Yeah, John, I think that's a good point. I, I think that as, as good as the the big bad nights were, and, uh, um, you know, they're undoubtedly an elite team. Um, yeah, that's, that's as bad as we've seen Quinn Hughes play. He only even played 19 minutes in the game. Mm -hmm. Um, he's not going to be that bad (laughs) the rest of the series. I mean, he's an elite defenseman. Uh, even Elias Pettersson only played 15 minutes. Um, they're, there's a lot more to give from the Canucks. And I think it's somewhat understandable, like you said, like coming into a game, uh, they didn't have much time to prepare. 
they had to move hotels on Saturday even. Um, you know, I think that was going to be a game that was going to be tough for them with the quick turnaround uh, because Vegas is, you know, they're sitting and waiting and, and getting jacked up for, for round two. So I think, um, you know, we'll learn a lot about uh, the Canucks' chances uh, early in game two and seeing how they respond and what adjustments uh, Travis Green makes uh, for the second game of the series. For both of you, for John and Rob, uh, looking at Quinn Hughes, and you both mentioned Mr. Hughes already, very talented, capable young guy, small but unbelievably talented, and boy did he have a rough outing, I think, as did Pedersen and uh, and, and all of the stars, and I think the the, the Vegas Knights were really prepared to, to, do, to play a shutdown game, not content to just shut them down, they scored five Five goals, but they really did shut down the big money guys. For sure, and I think we saw that right away when the Canucks said they only had one power play on the night, uh, and and when they had the power play, they put a lot of pressure right away on Quinn Hughes. They took away what uh, he was used to with so much open space and time when they were playing against St. Louis and they were burning the Blues regularly with that power play. Yeah, uh, I'm sure the Golden Knights looked at that tape and said, no, we cannot allow Quinn Hughes to hold on to that puck. So the pressure that he faced right away, I thought, uh, was a little jarring for him, but... Uh, I'm sure it's something that he's going to learn from. Yeah, he looked really confused at times on the bench, didn't he, Rob? He really looked, he, you, you got the feeling he'd never quite been played against like that before. Yeah, I think Kevin Bieksa showed it really well on the broadcast during the intermission, how they were just taking away the middle of the ice, and that really uh, caused problems for him. I, I think if you're looking for, for reasons to be optimistic that the Canucks can bounce back, I think you look at that first game against the Minnesota Wild where they just shut down all of the Canucks stars mm-hmm. and, and the team came back, you know, the rest in the next four games and rattled off or the next three games and rattled off three wins. And I think you also look at um, when things were not looking so uh, promising in that, in the series against the blues after game four, when they had tied the series again, the, um, I think we have to credit Travis green in, in making adjustments, mixing up his lines, doing different things, um, to to counter what what their opponents were doing, so I think that's I mean that's such a big thing in in playoffs. It's, it's not just uh, it's not like the regular season where where teams you know don't have much prep time. Uh, you know, in the playoffs, like other teams will game plan against your star players yep. and and come up with specific strategies. So it's up to up to the coach to figure out a way to to counter that um, for game two. I wanted to talk to the two of you about this this uh, item that somehow or another was expected by some to be more of a distraction than it turned out to be. It turned out to be a nothing burger after all. But there was this tweet put out by Marc-Andre Fleury's agent a day or two ago uh, featuring Marc-Andre with a sword in his back with the name of the coach on the blade of the sword. And, of course, the front of the sword sticking out and blood everywhere. It was very dramatic, very well done mm-hmm. graphically tweet but the implication being uh flurry had been backstabbed or let down by the the team he's got three stanley cup rings yada 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 and and so that was somewhere another uh, expected to create some furor or d- discontent in the dressing room and the team was supposed to hit the ice disorganized and was going to be a big advantage for vancouver nothing even close to that happened 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a brilliant move by the agent on the fact that uh, he's just trying to do what's best for his client. Of That's course. his main job, right? So he's, he's uh, maybe going on the offensive here a little bit. And I did kind of think like, oh, what kind of a storyline is this going to play heading yeah. into the series? Is there going to be a goaltending controversy all of a sudden? But, uh, you know, Marc-Andre Fleury had a press conference yesterday just before the game, and he just kind of diffused the situation as best he could. But uh, there's no doubt. Like, th- it's, a, it's a business where it's about, what have you done for me lately? And Robin Leonard has just been really, really good. And, and Rob, uh, Marc-Andre still gets to cash those huge paychecks, doesn't he? <laughs> Definitely. Um, I, I think from Fleury's standpoint, I'm, I can kind of understand why he's, um, you know, might feel, um, you know, he's probably feeling a bit of deja vu because in Pittsburgh he was, you know, he was the, the man, and and all of a sudden Matt Murray came in and and rattles off a couple of Stanley Cups, yep. and Fleury was praised for his professionalism and and you know just being being the consummate teammate. Uh, so he comes to Vegas and proves that he's still an elite goaltender. And he didn't uh, didn't have much time to slip up before they they bring in another goaltender um, who's been was essentially hand uh, you know handed the number one job here. So I think I can understand why Fleury would be you know privately upset, but this is definitely not you know we don't see this. Uh, I, I think this is the first time that I can remember that an agent uh, you know went that chose artwork to uh, express uh, disappointment in playing time <laughs> for one of his clients. Um, but this whole, and I, and I think like, like John, I was, I was wondering how this might play out. And I think this might still become an issue for the Golden Knights, but it only becomes an issue when the goalie lets in a goal. Yeah, that's true. When you're not letting in a goal, I don't think the rest of the teammates are going to be too bothered. So, uh, I think if, if, if the Canucks can get to Lanner and, and if he starts to let in, you know, if he lets in a bad goal, I think then that starts to creep in and. And, uh, you know, and after the game, all the reporters are going to be asking the coach who his goalie is going to be next game. I think it can then become a bit of an issue. But, um, yeah, you, you, you don't let in a goal. There's no goaltending controversy. Uh, and, and Vegas was rolling after game one. Uh, that's right. To Vegas 5, Vancouver, no score. We did open the phone lines. Joe's out there uh, with a few things to say about last night's game. Jump in here, Joe. What did you make of all of that last night? Hey, guys. Um, yeah, I've been cheering the Canucks for years, and, and you know, it's great to watch them. I, I think that your, your guests there are right that they were tired or maybe not as focused as they could be coming off the St. Louis series, which makes sense, especially with only one-day turnaround. Yep. But, you know, I, I got to say that, to me, Vegas kind of looks like what we can look like in a couple of years in the sense when our younger guys grow up, put some pounds on, and, you know, boys to men, right? I mean, Vegas kind of just looks like a bigger, better version of us not saying we can't win, but it's going to be a haul. Yeah, good good call, Joe. I appreciate it. And and back to your point earlier, Rob, about the, the first game against Minnesota, when they, too, looked really big, much bigger than we did, and they kind of handed it to us. Uh, so we got over that. Uh, Vegas, of course, is even better and much faster than Minnesota could ever dream of being. Is uh, is, uh, is Joe uh, right in saying that, uh, you know, we can get past this, we can we can level off and then beat them? Yeah, I mean, crazier things have happened in in the NHL. So I don't think you can count them out. Um, there, yeah. I mean, let's. I mean, let's be truthful. Vegas is the better team. They've got they've got a lot of firepower, and they're very deep. And I think that's one of the things that I think we can count on on more from the Canucks' top players. And I I think that um, you know they you know by and large had a, had an off night. I think we can we can expect more. Whether the we're 
Vegas really gives the Canucks trouble is their depth, and they're just so deep, lines one through four. No kidding. Uh, they're six D. Like that, that is trouble for the Canucks. Um, so, like, but you know, Jacob Markstrom can stand on his head. Uh, you know, he, he's been outstanding in these playoffs. Uh, you know, he can be better in net as well. So, I think you know, like John said before, like like. You know, Vegas is good, but I don't think that we saw the Canucks at their best in game one either. And John, there is no goalie controversy in Vancouver, despite the uh, the best efforts of the media to create one in Vegas. <laughs> there, there didn't turn out to be much there either. The only disappointment I had with uh, the Canucks and Jacob Markstrom last night was that they didn't pull him at the end of the second period when we were down 4 nothing. They let him go another half a period and let in another goal before they, they pulled him from the game. He was clearly tired. He was clearly not having a good night. I think Thatcher Demko could have done well all third period. What did you make of that? Yeah, I, I, I totally understand those thoughts because, uh, you know, logistically it makes a lot of sense to give Markstrom uh, at least the rest of the night off yeah. to get prepared for the next game tomorrow night. Sure. But I, I, I've had the chance to speak with Jacob Markstrom a few times in the past, and he's a fiercely competitive guy. And I wonder if maybe they did have that conversation and he with just him pleaded his case. intermission. Yeah, put me in exactly. coach anyway. Yeah, that's right. Exactly, exactly. He, he's the kind of guy who wants to stick it through. But uh, eventually when that fifth goal went in, Travis probably said, you know what? No, we're going to do what's best for you and this team. Uh, we're going to give Demko a few minutes here. Rob, do you see any lineup changes coming for game two tomorrow afternoon at 6.45 our time? Any any changes at all anticipated in the Vancouver Canucks uh, lineup tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, they've got a couple of uh, injured players that, um, I mean, there's, there's no independent media allowed at practice, so we're getting very little information. It's all insider information that that uh, that comes out to to find out that kind of news. Right. Um, Tyler Myers uh, had shoulder injury. He was seen in the Canucks videos, the celebration videos. He was fist bumping with his left hand, and then he was fist bumping with his right hand. So that seems like good news um, for for his shoulder injury. Um, but but you know, typically those take a little bit of time to come back from. So I'm not sure on him. Uh, there was a report recently about uh, Tyler Toffoli that he could potentially could have potentially been ready for game six of the last series. So to Foley seems like he might be the guy he hasn't played since game one against Minnesota. Right. Um, potentially they could, they could get to Foley back. And I think that would really be a, a, a shot in the arm for the team. Uh, he would give them, uh, you know, two potent scoring lines, um, which they're going to need, uh, you know, against a, a deeper team like Vegas. Any injuries last night that we aren't aware of this morning that perhaps you, uh, from your insiders up in Edmonton, are hearing about? Uh, no, I haven't, I haven't heard of any uh, any injuries uh, from last game, but uh, you, you never know. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, even when we have access to practice, there always tends to be um, uh, mystery injuries that that pop up. Uh, and I think another guy that that um, you know some people might talk about is Zach McEwen, maybe drawing into the lineup. That's possible I, I wouldn't i wouldn't bet on it I, even though he's got size but um i think adam Godet, who had uh, taken a spot in the lineup uh you know was was one of the players that had it had some jump against vegas so all right final question to both him. of you yeah. uh the canucks it is said by many and i sat with a group of them last night need more grit and sandpaper they need more scrappers and Antoine Roussel you know bless his heart is is not a very big guy and he certainly had a big mouth and got under the skin of lord knows how many uh, opposition players but there's nobody the size of a Reeves or there's nobody in that category that can can step up uh, and and uh, provide grit 
and truculence, to use a Burke word, when necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And Rob was kind of mentioning the name uh, Zach McEwen. Yes. He would be maybe the the, the, the best counterpart uh, the Vancouver Canucks have to a Ryan Reeves. But you're not going to throw a rookie like Zach McEwen into the lineup specifically to try and go fight Ryan Reeves. Good First luck. of all, I don't think it's fair for Zach. Yeah. And also, Ryan is like the undisputed heavyweight champion in the NHL. No so kidding. It's, it's, a, it's a tall task for anyone to try and go up against him. I think the Canucks, uh, and as much as I love Roussel's energy with what he brings to the game, uh, for his team, you just have to focus on what you do best, and that's drawing penalties, moving your feet, and then burning teams on the power play. And again, we didn't see enough of that last night. Rob, final thoughts? Yeah, you know what? Hey, there's there's many different ways to win in the NHL. The, the um, you know the Knights are, are bigger and badder, and uh, Reed's the biggest, baddest guy on the ice. They're not going to win trying to play that kind of game with Vegas. Right. They've got to. They've got to be gritty. You know, one through twenty in their lineup. Every single guy goes for Elias Pettersson, goes for Brock Besser. All of those guys play hard and uh, and use their speed and skill. That's how they're going to win. Rob, always a pleasure to have you on the program. And and I don't know if we were sad enough for you, but it sure was fun. (laughs) And uh, John, we'll catch up to you in just a few minutes with that Strathcona story. Yesterday morning on our weekend show, we had a visit from UBC urban designer, Professor Patrick Condon, who was talking about the homeless problem in Vancouver. His solution, tiny homes, and pointed to a number of American examples where cities have uh, funded tiny houses for people who are homeless and created small communities. Communities uh, that have proven to be, in some examples, pretty successful. Patrick uh, figured that that would be a solution or could certainly be considered as a solution here in Vancouver. Uh, his bottom line, no one is happy about the situation at Strathcona. And I think that is a truism that we can all agree on, regardless of which side of the fence we are. Strathcona residents are, it is said, and we've heard it a number of times, resorting to a tax revolt to find a solution for what they call Camp KT. Our producer, John Jang, has been following this story and working on it extensively. John, uh, jump in here and and pick up the ball and and let us know about your interviews uh, and your research into Strathcona. Yeah, thanks, uh, Sterling. And uh, for transparency's sake, last week on this show, we had the chance to have a conversation with Janice Abbott. She's the CEO of the Atira Women's Resource Society and a very outspoken community leader regarding the situation that uh, we're seeing with Strathcona, with Oppenheimer, and the result of the closure from the original park and how it's kind of dispersed throughout uh, different places across the city. And uh, when I spoke with uh, Janice Abbott, uh, she kind of mentioned that when she heard about the tax revolt happening from Strathcona residents, that while she understood the frustrations of the people living there, uh, she would have ideally liked to have seen that kind of energy channeled in a more meaningful manner. So when we finished with that conversation here on CKNW, uh, I posted that uh, clip onto my Twitter and I got a message. I I received a a response from someone named uh, Jamie McLaren. He's a resident of Strathcona and a social justice lawyer and someone who's kind of spearheading this uh, tax revolt campaign. And he's he was just expressing his frustration because when he hears that kind of a response to the tax revolt movement, he thinks that it's kind of misinformed because uh, in his words that uh, this tax revolt movement has a lot of details that people maybe just aren't understanding or even know about just yet. And I was being honest. And uh, when he kind of shared me some of these details, I didn't realize uh, a lot of the information that was there. So I figured if I don't know about this, then chances are more people don't know about this. But Jamie kind of shared with me his thoughts on what it's like living in Strathcona as a resident himself. 
Yeah, I'm a concerned Strathcona resident who happens to be a homeowner, and I've lived in Strathcona for nine years. I have a a family here uh, with a young son who's about to turn five in October, and we've seen, you know, living in Strathcona, you 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 know that um, it comes with certain um, challenges and, and 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 colorful behavior, and, and that's fine. It's it's uh, an extension of the downtown east side. Um, there's certainly there's been uh, you know quite a bit of property crime uh, over the years, and and it's escalated rapidly in the last couple of years, and and not sure why that's the case. Um, but more recently, when um, Camp KT encamped in uh, Strathcona Park, we noticed there was another spike and dramatic spike in, in property crime and um, verbal assaults and just confrontations in, in the in the neighborhood. Which and also some safety issues with more biohazardous materials, drug needles, and um, and human feces in various places in the neighborhood um, more so than before. So. So I'm part of a group of, of concerned residents who are, you know, trying to be as compassionate and understanding of the overall sort of systemic issue at play here and trying to find solutions, very solution-focused um, and trying to be very supportive of the, the camp's needs and the, the, the needs of unhoused residents. We know that we know that they need safe homes. They deserve safe homes. Everyone deserves a, a safe homes in our, in our uh, line of thinking. And uh, we're trying to, to uh, push government to, uh, to act sooner than later um, and, uh, and address some of these issues. What an articulate guy, John. Hardly, mm-hmm. a, hardly a radical under anyone's definition, huh? No, I, I thought he was a very well-spoken gentleman. Indeed. Who obviously is very passionate about the community that he lives in. And I guess when people hear the words tax revolt, maybe there are some eyeballs rolled because some people say, well, then you're not doing your part uh, to the greater community at large. But McLaren did explain why he believes and others in the Strathcona area uh, believe a, a tax revolt is really the right answer for them. Well, we know that, you know, one level of government isn't enough to, to make the changes needed here. So we're trying to apply pressure where we can apply pressure. And that just happens to be through uh, tax withholding and, and specifically by deferring taxes where we can. More people qualify to defer their property taxes than I think know about it. So we're going around and spreading the word, you know, defer your taxes if you agree with these three demands and and save your, your tax money, your tax payments for a government who's taking these issues seriously. So that's our, our message here. And, and we can only get at the city, the municipal government, and hope that they put pressure on the provincial government and hope that they in turn put pressure on the federal government and so forth, because we know it's going to take all three levels of government to solve this problem. And it's not going to be easy. So not John, be easy. Yeah. what are the three demands? Clearly, there is a way to get the local residents in Strathcona back onto the tax-paying wagon if the three demands are met. What are those demands, John? It's a great question. I asked that to to Jamie himself, and he had uh, some very great answers and going into detail what those three demands look like in this revolt. So the demands are one: uh, a permanent end to displacement of Camp KT, which is currently in Strathcona Park by way of final relocation to sanctioned and safe refuges away from public park space where at least 300 unhoused local residents can find community, rest, and essential public services and utilities that they need and deserve. So that's our main demand. You know, find, find the campers, the unhoused people, uh, safe homes where they, they, they can rest, they find community, be supported, and, and get the supports they need. 
Our second demand is a, a firm commitment from uh, one or more levels of government to build 4,000 units of true social housing across Vancouver on a high-priority basis. So we we understand that we're in this position because there's just a, a huge deficit of social housing and affordable housing in Vancouver, and certainly the, the approach the city's taken in, in recent years and decades of, of tagging, tacking on you know, quote-unquote affordable housing units to condo developments isn't working for for low-income people. And and so we firmly believe that more social housing is, is needed in Vancouver. Our neighborhood has two social housing projects bookending the, the neighborhood, and they're, they're incredible community assets. They're, you know, it's a very um, diverse and inclusive neighborhood as a result of the social housing here, so we invite more social housing. Uh, and number three is um, a three-fold increase to the amount of sanitation and mental health support resources directed to restoring public health and safety in Strathcona. So, you know, when you walk the streets these days, we, we come across needles, we come across human feces, or we come across just plain litter. Um, there's tents popping up in, in different places, not just Strathcona Park. And we understand that's, you know, a, a result of the COVID pandemic and also government inaction. But um, we also, you know, when you travel to neighborhoods like Carisdale or Kitsilano, or even Mount Pleasant, you, you see the stark difference in how those neighborhoods are are, are maintained uh, in comparison to our neighborhood. You know, it's it's a neighborhood that, for years, has been um, has a history of neglect and abandonment from from government, uh, or at times interference and expropriation. When you you know they got rid of the Hope Valley community in order to build viaducts, or when they tore down houses to to build social housing projects, which actually turned out to be a a, a somewhat good thing. So. Um, we were somewhat used to that, but we're, you know, it, it's come to a crisis point now. The, the neighborhood's in, in serious disrepair. It needs more resources. It needs this, especially mental health resources because we see people having psychotic uh, episodes in, in public places and there's confrontations happening between, between residents. And we, we, you know, so we, we need more, more help. Strathcona resident and social justice lawyer uh, Jamie McLaren in conversation with our John Jang. Now, these demands, uh, find homes for campers, John, build 4,000 units of social housing and increase funding for cleanup in the area by a factor of three. Uh, Mm -hmm. How long have these demands been around and what feedback are the residents hearing from governments? Well, it's a great question. I think when you listen to those, it's very reasonable from the outside looking in. As someone who obviously doesn't live in the Strathcona area, I, I absolutely feel compassionate to, for their pleas and, and for what they're trying to accomplish here. But in terms of what they've heard, McLaren says, not a thing. We, we've heard nothing from anyone uh, on any level of government. You know, any any communications or messages have been very indirect and, and via the media um, so it's you know we're we're left to to conclude that our politicians are simply don't don't care about our our situation and abandoned us and that's why we're you know grasping at last straws here using the only labor we 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 can and, and that is to withhold taxes we're as a group I think very supportive of paying taxes you know in order to to receive the the you know the the support and the infrastructure that's needed to for a civil society. But we're, we're just not seeing it here in Strathcona. We're, you know, and we, we wonder, you know, if this was a camp in, in a different neighborhood in uh, Shaughnessy or in, uh, in Marple even, or, you know, would things be different? Would it be a different response? And, and so we're, um, we're doing our best to call attention to this situation. And, and we're used to some level of government neglect and abandonment, but, um, but we're doing our best to, to stand up to it as well.
Well, John, uh, the the frustrating part for people like you and me who don't live in the area, and to say nothing of those who do, has been watching this bizarre ping pong game going on between Vancouver City Hall, Vancouver City Mm -hmm. Council, and the Vancouver Park Board over jurisdictional matters. And as long as that game is on, nothing else is being accomplished. Absolutely. And so the residents suffer. The people that are in the camps suffer. The entire city really does suffer. And you're hearing it from Jamie McLaren, who lives in Strathcona, is seeing and and experiencing a lot of these turmoils every single day. He mentioned earlier on that he has a son who's about to turn five years old in October. And, uh, you know, you you worry about them as as young parents about uh, whether or not it's safe to even take those those kids for a walk. So it's it's an issue that's growing day by day. And uh, he he sort of said, "Look, if you're if you're willing to learn more, or if you want to maybe support the petition for this tax revolt, uh, you can look up the details. It's change.org/safe-strathcona. That's safe with an F. So change.org is one of those petition sites, right? So change.org/slash/which safe Strathcona." Okay. Uh, I was hoping that there would be some kind of gathering point for people to, to help out, focus, uh, focus more attention on, on getting this thing, at least getting things moving here. John, uh, great work. Uh, a, a sad story that is unfortunately far from being mm-hmm. resolved, but we do appreciate the, the homework you've done on this. It allows uh, some of us uh, who are still unfamiliar with all of the details a chance to have a look at it from the perspective of, of a local resident and a very articulate individual you selected. Well done. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, my my thanks to Jamie McLaren, who reached out originally and uh, was more than happy to share his thoughts on this topic. So uh, thank you.